Welcome to the Real Estate Asset Management Podcast brought to you by Break of Day Capital. The show focuses on educating syndicators and apartment owners on how to build systems and manage their properties more efficiently to become a best-in-class operator. 100% straight talk. Let's jump in. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Asset Management Podcast. I'm your host, Gary Lipsky with Break of Day Capital. Be sure to join our Facebook group, Asset Management Mastery, where we have a great community of thousands of like-minded individuals sharing resources and best practices. Choosing the right insurance coverage for multifamily properties isn't that complicated, if you know who to talk to. At the Garzella Group, we're uniquely qualified to help you navigate the range of policy choices you have, and we're committed to saving you 30% in the process. We do intensive market research and have nationwide relationships, so we can find coverage other insurance brokers simply can't. We should talk. Go to quotenow.biz and we'll start the conversation. Today on the podcast, we have Mark Lively. Mark is the founder of Cloudline Investment, and prior to that, was the SVP of acquisitions and asset management on roughly $3 billion worth of transactions. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Can you start by telling the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you do? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Gary. So like Gary was talking about, I recently started Cloudline Investments, which is really just a way to connect investors with direct investments in commercial real estate. And prior to that, I was working in what I would more the institutional side of real estate. So working with private equity funds and hedge funds and really doing large-scale assets, primarily in the Bay Area. Our bread and butter business plan was to buy older existing assets and put in a a heavy value-add approach, sometimes putting in upwards of $150,000 a door in renovations, which to people in other parts of the country can sound insane because you can buy sometimes two units for $150,000 a door. And we would just add value in investing in these incredibly supply-constrained markets and then really focusing on execution and doing things that other operators in the space wouldn't be willing to do and really building lifestyle brands around those types of renovations. I'm curious, $150,000 a door, where were these properties located in general? It's one of those funny things where you're really taking advantage of California's really bad land use policy. So we were based entirely in the Bay Area, going into the nice suburban areas, Tiburon, Menlo Park, areas like that, where the homes are $3 million plus as a starter home and buying these assets that honestly should have been torn down and rebuilt years ago. And basically doing that, we were taking down the studs and making something that looked and felt new. And the only reason you can do that is because you have such a crazy private sector in the Bay Area, and there's a ton of supply constraints. That's why I love real estate. Every market, there's opportunity, different asset classes, there's always opportunity. And every you can have so many different business plans, and there's no one right way to do it. There's lots of ways to skin the cat and make a good amount of money. Absolutely. And I, I think that that's one of the things that really gets overlooked these days is are supply constraints because you have such a, a huge fluctuation in demand because of post-COVID. And so you have all these kind of markets in middle America that were not particularly attractive in 2019 and, and have seen a huge influx of people coming in. 
And the supply in those markets just really hasn't caught up to the demand, but they're markets where the supply can catch up. And so investing in places where you kind of have physical constraints or regulatory constraints, in the long run, those markets will appreciate more, but you've kind of seen the inverse in the last two or three years. Well, I want to pick your brain about institutional asset management best practices. A lot of the people I speak to come from more of a boutique company, and I know you started your own. But you know, I wanted to find out some of the biggest lessons learned working for an institutional company. What are some of the biggest differences that you you've seen? Absolutely. I would say that the one thing that gets overlooked in what I would call small scale real estate investment is revenue management. And really that comes down to just making sure that you are pricing your apartment appropriately. And Ideally, you want to be operating your property in kind of the 95% occupancy range and not being afraid of turnover and not being afraid of moving your prices all the time. You really want to start out with kind of the highest price you can get and kind of iterate down until you get good leasing volume. And fundamentally, you have to keep good data to do that well on a small scale. Large companies have all sorts of kind of data processing software. If you've been following the news, Yieldstar and whatever their other competitor is have got a ton of headlines because they're being involved in a class action lawsuit where everybody says it's a cartel, but that's a whole nother side note. But all, all those programs are really doing are collecting data and then processing it in a way that optimizes revenue at a property. It's really pretty straightforward. Do you feel like the comps that you're getting are, are good? Because when we've used certain softwares before, it's pulling data from three miles away, five miles away, even a mile away, and not using the properties that are good comps right down the street from them. And so we'll do our own set of comps and don't rely on the software because we feel it's it's much better that way. The quality of the comps matters, right? It's garbage in, garbage out. So if you can keep better data, all the better. But you have to routinely keep data and not just when you want to price a new apartment. And you have to have that kind of historic outlook and probably chart three to four comps on a regular basis and come up with a composite of what your property should rent for based on those three or four properties. And you have to be really honest with yourself about, are we a discount to this property? Are we a premium to it? Everybody likes to think that their property should rent more than it does. That's just the nature of the beast. You just have to be really honest with it and put yourself in the renter's shoes. But certainly... If you can use the property next door, that's always better than using something that's in a slightly different market. What are the big differences do you see from an institutional side versus more of a smaller OT company? I would say that there's way more emphasis on the incremental ROI that you're seeing, especially when you're working with a really granular funds. They want to break down the entire capital budget into ROI per item. It's not just looking at like, all right, we're shooting for a 10 to 15% ROI. It's okay. If we're doing this incremental add to the renovation scope, let's say we're putting in porch countertops instead of just upgrading it to better, newer Formica, they want to see the exact price difference of that. And really, some of that stuff is very difficult to parse out, but it's just being very disciplined in getting that exact range that you want, whether it's 12% ROI, 15% ROI, it's trying to be very analytical and granular and disciplined in that approach. Yeah, we've debated a lot on some of the exterior work that we do because we're putting a good amount of money in these 
maybe C class properties, you know, B minus paint job. How do you quantify the ROI on, on paint? Now, I know that that's going to drive a lot of our rental income increases, quite honestly. But how would your typical owner operator come up with the ROI on, on paint? You're trying to isolate that item, right? If you just painted the building, how much do you think you could increase rent? And if you just did the interior scope, how much do you think that could increase rent? I mean, I'm a big believer that those things kind of have some synergies, right? If you just renovated the apartment and the outside still looks like shit, that's going to be an issue for people coming in. And, you know, alternatively, if you just painted, it's going to be an issue. Let me ask you a question. What would you say is the breakdown of exterior capex used to interior capex on as a ratio? You know, every property is different, but I would say 33% to 50% on the exterior. Yep. For us, typically, typically the property, you know, if it looks too nice, it's probably not a property for us, quite honestly. We feel the biggest bang for our buck is, is on the exterior, quite honestly. Yeah. And I think that is something that is probably more common when you are investing in like classy properties, where there's a lot of big REITs and funds and that type of thing are, aren't going to touch that stuff. Right. And so they're going to see just very light exterior renovation paint, maybe fixing up the landscaping, maybe new FF to the E in the clubhouse, and then they're going to spend most of their capital on the interior of the units where you can really just figure out that exact ROI because you rented this unrenovated apartment for this and the other renovated apartment at that. Nice, nice. And what are some of the biggest lessons learned working in, in an institutional company that I'm curious You've been able to cut your teeth on working for someone else, and now you've ventured out on your own, which is which is awesome. You've built up a lot of connections. You've seen how they work. You're able to apply that to your business. So I'm curious, what are some of the biggest lessons learned? The biggest lessons learned just when it comes to assets management or, or overall? Yeah. Uh, overall. Yeah. Overall, I think that the biggest lesson overall is that the simple math has to make sense. I think that a lot of people get too caught up in very complicated ROI models and they're looking at too many different metrics. The truth is if you make a pro forma and you find out your total yield on cost, there's not going to be a more true measure of that if you're looking at a deal by itself. You take the yield on cost, compare it to what cap rates are. And if that one metric doesn't make sense, you can make the rest of it make sense, but you're only going to do so by lying to yourself on a bunch of assumptions. <laughs> so I'd say the one of the biggest things is to keep it simple. I'd say the other one is that really just understand your market. Understand exactly who's going to be renting your apartment. Really try to put yourself in their shoes and really try to come up with a, a specific persona of who the, you know, not who that specific person is, but who the groups of people are. Because that'll really inform a lot of your decisions about how you're running the property and what type of renovations you're making. And I think that a lot of people just say, okay, we can kind of do this cookie cutter formula of renovation scope that we've done to our last five apartment buildings without really thinking about who the renters are going to be. Yield on costs is, is that something that we heard a lot of in 2022 in regards to lenders and MES and PREF. Prior to that, we never really discussed that with these groups. You know, they didn't ask for that. Right. But 2022, that was in every single conversation. All um, of a sudden, the interest rates go up and everybody's back to basics. Yeah. Yep. 
So true. So true. What are some of the metrics institutional investors look at when evaluating a deal? Um, Besides yield on cost. (laughs) Yeah, that is the single best metric and everybody will include it in all their investment memos. I would say that the biggest difference between working with individual investors and institutional investors and how they look at it is an institutional investor is going to be heavily IRR driven with kind of an equal weight on multiples. So they want a high IRR for a five to six year timeframe, like called four to six year timeframe, whereas an individual investor will naturally be more focused on cash flow distributions. Because if you're getting into investing in an LP because you want to replace your W-2 income, that makes a lot more sense. Whereas people who run funds are compensated based on the carried interest of whatever the IRR and multiple in their fund are. And that's just what they're going to be focused on. So it's going to be largely driven of what makes sense for each investor given their financial landscape, right? But once again, IRR is arguably the best metric to look at any deal, in my opinion. But at the same time, it's the easiest one to get carried away with in your assumptions. It's really easy to to kind of get bullish on something and say we're going to have huge rent growth and cap rates are going to compress. And then all of a sudden, you have an unrealistic IRR. Yeah, yeah. And an IRR to retail customers versus institutional is quite different too. I mean, our investors are typically looking for high 15 to 18% where institutional, I mean, what was the number that you guys added? 12% or? Oh, yeah. I mean, we were doing stuff that was heavy value adds. So we shot, you know, we were shooting for more in the high teens, but routinely institutional investors will buy a light value add deal and have it underwrite to like a 12% IRR. <laughs> I mean, they just have really, they just have really cheap money. And you have some of the investors in there aren't taxable entities, right? If, if like Harvard's endowment is investing in something, they don't pay taxes anyway. So they're just playing with the deck stack for them. But yeah. And, and also in general, that's one of the reasons that I really wanted to transition to doing deals that are kind of what I would call in the sub-institutional space is that there's just so much competition in what I would call the $40 million plus dollar range. Because all of a sudden, you're really bidding against firms like Blackstone and, and like these kind of global household names in, in terms of private equity. And there's a ton of money chasing those deals. And so the yields compress, the IRR compresses, et cetera. So I'm curious what your thesis is, You know, what your markets, what, what kind of properties you're, you're targeting. Because I know you just did a deal recently. And you know, where was that market? What's your, your plan on that property? Yeah. So the deal that I recently closed is up in Portland, Oregon. I would guess that's probably not what a lot of people, where a lot of people are buying right now. And I kind of like it that way. But once again, it's relying on supply constraints. Portland's a tough place to build. They have what's called an urban growth boundary where you can't build outside a, a certain line. And then they have additional regulatory constraints on how many people basically have to prove a new project and taxes you have to pay. And all this just makes it much harder to build new housing. So when you buy existing assets, that's just all to your benefit. And so when I was selecting markets, obviously I was looking somewhere in the barrier where I live, but I was also wanted to find a West Coast market that um, was a little bit cheaper in terms of a going in rate. And by cheaper, I really mean higher going in cap rate, but also had a lot of the similar supply constraints and had a diversified economy. And yeah, I really think that Portland's probably the best investment market west of the Mississippi right now because of those reasons. And once again, I'm buying stuff in kind of the sub $15 million range. 
because I think it's a much more inefficient market. And the idea is really just to be opportunistic and be flexible and, and find assets that are being mismanaged or have kind of obvious CapEx needs. With this last one, it was just a situation where the prior owner, very wealthy guy, wasn't paying very close attention and really just wasn't operating the property right. So we're going to come in and do some light CapEx shore up the operations, create a really strong operational track record, and then either do a cash out refi or sell it to the next buyer based on that track record. Nice. I haven't heard anyone say to me, I'm investing in Portland, and that's, I love that's it. great because, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I love it. As soon as that starts to happen, I probably won't be in buying there anymore because the yields <laughs> have gone down. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, it's always about finding opportunity where others where others don't, and that brings the best rewards. So. Awesome. It was great talking to you about your institutional background, what you're doing now. Mark, how can listeners find out more about you and your company? Yeah, absolutely. The company is called Cloudline Investments and the website is cloudlineinb.com. And also feel free to reach out to me directly, mark at cloudlineinb.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mark. This is Gary Lipsky signing off. I'll be back next week with another informative episode on the Real Estate Asset Management Podcast. To all of our listeners, thanks for joining us. And if you like this episode, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher and like, subscribe, and review this podcast as it will help us grow our audience and reach more people. And if you'd like to learn more about what we do at Break of Day Capital, head over to our website, breakofdaycapital.com and sign up for our newsletter and or fill out our investor application. We'll talk to you next week. 